Well, thank you for uh, being with us today, and uh, or whenever you're happen to be watching this. It's uh, uh, very unusual for you, and it's unusual for me as well. And so thank you for enduring in these times. We are blessed that we have the opportunity, the options of doing this. This would not always have been the case, uh, for sure. Um, if you would take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 1, we're going to read from there in a little bit. We are facing circumstances, as we're all aware, that are very unusual, and uh, they're worldwide. And probably none of us really feels prepared for uh, what we are facing right now. But as Christians, we have uh, an advantage over the entire world in that we have a great confidence in the sovereignty of God, that he is at work, even in circumstances like this, that uh, that he is over all things, and that includes COVID-19. And so we don't know what will happen with this situation. We don't have any idea what the future will hold or, or what next week will hold or next month or anything like that. But um, we do know the God who is in control of all things, the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so as, as Christians, we take very great comfort in that, that he is in control of all of this. And though we don't understand these situations, we don't understand this world, yet we know him and he has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we take, uh, we take comfort in that, that God is sovereign in these events. And likewise, he is sovereign over uh, all of our lives. And we spent some time a couple of weeks ago or uh, recently looking uh, at the book of Exodus and uh, working through there and seeing what um, what the Lord would teach us about himself and about our relationship with him that would help us in these times now. Because we looked at uh, the book of Exodus, preached through that in 2017. And, uh, of course, that was a few years ago, but God was sovereign then, too. And he knew then uh, what exactly was coming to us now. And so we wanted to open the book of Exodus and see what he might have taught us then that was being filed away that we maybe maybe never even caught on to or maybe it wasn't important to us at the time. And yet now in these circumstances, it becomes more important to us. And so, um, likewise, we wanted to turn today to the book of Acts because we preached through the book of Acts starting in 2018 and actually finished the book that year. And, uh, and so we want to ask the question, looking at the book of Acts, we want to ask the question, what is the Lord doing today? What is the Lord doing today? And so as you have your Bible open now to uh, the book of Acts, we're going to read what is uh, just the introduction to the book here, just the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. So follow with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taking, taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we worship you. We don't, uh, we don't worship anything on this earth. We don't ultimately trust anything on this earth or in our lives. We trust you and we worship you. Father, we recognize that you are the one true God. There is none like you. We recognize that you have always existed, that you are our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer. And so we worship you and we give you honor. We praise you for what you have done for us in Christ, part of which we will celebrate this morning and we will talk about during our time, we praise you for the salvation that we have in Christ that we never deserved, that is purely by your grace, your saving work in our lives. We praise you for that. We praise you that you have put your Holy Spirit within us who are redeemed. We praise you that you are at work conforming us to the image of your Son. And we praise you that you have given us your word which is true and teaches us truly. Father, this morning we ask that you would speak to us by your Spirit, from your Word, that we would see you, that we would reorder our priorities, our understanding, our lives, according to what is true about you. So we ask that you would be at work even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're asking the question today, what is the Lord doing today? And we're turning to the book of Acts, not just because it was the next series that we preached uh, after the book of Exodus, but because of some things that we see here even in verse 1. You see, the book of Acts is written by Luke, and it's the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. And so we see in verse one, him referring to this man, Theophilus, and you see him referring to the first book that he wrote, which would be the gospel that you have in your new Testament, the gospel of Luke. And he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so there are a couple things we want to notice there. First of all, he's referring to the same man. He's referring back to the gospel that he had written. And so he says, this is part two, or this is the continuation, or this is the same story, and, and uh, this is the second part of it. But I want, to, I want you to notice what he says that story was about. That first one was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The point being, the book of Acts is the story of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. 
So he's still continuing to do and to teach in the book of Acts like he was in the gospel of Luke, and yet he's doing so in different ways. But you see that he's still at work. The Lord is still accomplishing things. He's still the one doing the work here. In my Bible, it calls the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. And of course, that's not a bad title because they were the ones going and doing the things. Others have called it the the Acts of the Holy Spirit which is also a good title because you see the spirit at work in the lives of believers, building God's kingdom, etc. But in a very real sense, this is the continuing acts of Jesus, still at work, still doing and still teaching. And so when we ask the question today, what is the Lord doing today? I believe the book of Acts is a good place for us to go and find an answer to that question. And so today we're just going to look at the introduction to this book. The first thing I want us to notice is the resurrection power of Christ. The resurrection power of Christ and how foundational it is. You see there in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So you see the foundational element, the foundational aspect of the resurrection of Christ. That yes, he, he lived and he obeyed God and he, he served God and he died in our place and that was not the end of the story. That actually God raised him from the dead, actually raised him from the dead and he showed himself, he presented himself to various people giving various proofs and talking about the kingdom of God. And so you see there's a very foundational element that is the resurrection of Christ. It is foundational. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we have the first recorded sermon in the book. And of course, you have these events happening that are very unusual. You have, uh, in the beginning of the chapter, you have people speaking in tongues. You have uh, tongues of fire resting on people's heads. You have uh, a noise as of a rushing wind. There's a big commotion going on. This is very unusual. And this is supernatural. And Peter stands up because the people are wondering, all the thousands of people who have witnessed this are are wondering what's going on, they're questioning what's happening, and Peter stands up and he says, well, this stuff that you see right now is all happening because of one man, the resurrected Jesus. He's the reason all of this is happening. And so he says in chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Peter's very first sermon that we have recorded in the book of Acts builds upon the resurrection of Christ. It's foundational. And it's foundational not just for Peter when he's preaching to the Jews there in Jerusalem, but it's also foundational for Paul when he's preaching to the Gentiles. You think about the events of Mars Hill in chapter 17, and, and, and there is Paul, and he's preaching to Gentiles, he's preaching to pagans, and what does he refer to in that passage? The resurrection. He builds once again upon the resurrection. He says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is foundational. And of course, Paul will argue in a different place that if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, then Christians are just playing make-believe. And we are the most pitiful people in the world because we've based our hope on something that's not true. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, as we believe is true, then he is the fulfillment of God's promises that he made to Israel. Then in him, in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. And in him, we have new spiritual life. We have life before God by that same resurrection power. So I want to say in passing, if there are skeptics uh, listening to this right now, that you need to know that Christians actually do believe that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. That he was dead, he was fully dead, and God raised him bodily to new life. That this is something we actually believe and that Jesus had said beforehand this was exactly what would happen. We actually do believe this is true. We believe this is God acting in history and that it is foundational for Christian doctrine. The resurrection of Christ is foundational for the book of Acts and it's foundational really for all of Christian teaching. That's the resurrection of Christ. And I want to move on now to look at the, the power of that resurrected Christ and that it is irresistible. It is irresistible. You read through the book of Acts and you see these amazing events of what God does in difficult circumstances and, and you look at Peter and those with him being jailed. And the jail can't hold him. God springs them uh, from that jail and does so a couple of times for Peter. And then Paul and his companions, same thing, thrown into prison. But the bars can't hold him. They are miraculously freed. And why? Just so God could save his people? Just so God could take his people out of a tough situation? No, it's so they can go on and preach. They move on and preach the gospel. And even even Paul, at times when he's in, in prison for years, and when he's on a journey and he gets shipwrecked, and he's lost at sea, and his, his journey is brought to an end, those things can't stop the spread of the gospel. Can't stop the gospel from going even further into Rome and beyond Rome. And so you see that God's power at work in the resurrected Christ is irresistible. It can't be stopped. Bars can't hold it. Nothing can hold it. The, the, the plots of evil men to, to kill God's people, to kill God's messenger, the shipwreck at sea, the, the open ocean can't stop what God wants to accomplish. And there's a, one more incident I want to look at very briefly, and that's what we call the Macedonian call that happens in, in chapter 16 of Acts. Now, I think it gives us a special insight into the, the behind-the-scenes goings-on that God is doing when he is at work in the world. You see, Paul and his companions were traveling and they wanted to go into a particular place. They wanted to go into a particular region and their motivation was to go preach the gospel. They wanted to go and minister there. But you remember what happens in, uh, in that passage that they, they weren't allowed to go in. And actually chapter 16 tells us specifically that the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go in there. Kept them from it. And we ask, why? Why is that the case? 
we don't know all of the answer to that, but we do know part of the answer. The very next situation, the very next place that Paul and his companions go is to Philippi. They have what's called the, the, the Macedonian vision, Paul does. And in that vision, he's stuck and he's praying and he hasn't been able to go and minister where he wants to minister. He's praying or he has a vision at night and the Lord speaks to him. The Lord gives him this vision of a man standing in Macedonia saying, come help us, come preach to us. And so Paul realizes at that moment, we have been forbidden to go here so that we can go to another place, so that we can go on to Philippi. And of course, in Philippi, you know what happens where you have Lydia converted and you have the jailer converted because of uh, the miracles that he has seen. You you see a, a church planted there in Philippi. And that's the reason that the Holy Spirit did this. But what's What's powerful, what's instructive to me in this is that it was not Satan who barred Paul's path. It wasn't Satan that jumped in the way and and Paul just couldn't fight through and thus Paul was kind of beaten. This is the Holy Spirit stopping him from moving forward. And I think we have a peek here of what goes on behind the scenes a lot of times that actually when, when we think... Ah, the power of God is being limited or we think the gospel is is not expanding the way it should or there are things being brought against the church. Well, yeah, in a way that's true. But in a larger way, God is at work in that whole process and so that he's actually accomplishing his purposes just like he accomplished his purposes for Paul and his companions, not allowing them to go into those regions that they wanted to. They felt thwarted. They were frustrated, I'm sure. And it was God at work to take them on to something different and something new and something better. And so the power of Christ is irresistible. The enemy can, can stand in the way, but not really. He's, he, he's, he, he can't thwart what God's plan is. He can't thwart what Christ is doing. And so that should give us comfort because we Christians are those who know this Christ, who has this power, this power that, that can't be stopped. And that's the one that we serve. That's the one who is in charge of us. That's the one we are submitted to. That is the one who is our Lord. Paul Paul had his normal ways of doing ministry, and he was thwarted in that. And we have our normal ways of doing ministry, and we have our normal ways of living life, and this is not it. (laughs) This is not it for me to be speaking to a camera in a nearly empty room and for you to be sitting on your couch or wherever you are. This is not normal. But Paul not being allowed to go into that region was not normal either. But the result, the result of that situation, of Paul's not being allowed to go into that region and being forced to go somewhere else was, was a, a fabulous and, and, and glorious kind of ministry that we call to mind now 2,000 years later. And we're amazed when the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And we're amazed when we, when we see uh, the, uh, Paul and Silas singing and we see all that goes on in that event there in Philippi. And we're amazed about it 2,000 years later. And that's, that's partially the result of the Holy Spirit not allowing Paul and his companions to go into that one region. Now, I said, this is not our normal way of, of, of working. You see, Paul and, and his companions, they often had their world turned on, on its head often with shipwreck and with arrest and with being beaten up and all that kind of stuff. You and I are not really used to that. We have our own normalcy that we normally function in. 
And I'm not suggesting that these weird circumstances we find ourselves in now with the COVID-19 that's plaguing the world and all that. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that God is doing this so that we will have the kind of ministry like the apostles did or so that we will have even the kind of ministry that people will remember into the future and, and look back on. That may be the case. That may not be the case. I don't know. But what I am suggesting is that the power of the risen Christ is at work just as really and as truly and as profoundly right now in these weird circumstances as he was in those weird circumstances when the Spirit wouldn't let them go where they wanted to go and minister where they wanted to minister. So what, what is he doing? The, the, the Spirit's at work right now converting sinners into worshipers of him. He's at work right now building his church through the ministry of the word and the proclamation of the gospel. And he's at work wielding his power that is beyond our comprehension to establish his kingdom. Those are things he is doing right now. And his power is irresistible. The resurrection power of Christ is irresistible and it's unstoppable. I want us to notice, secondly, back in Acts chapter 1, the baptism of the Spirit. Look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for, the, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, this is chapter 1, and you remember the events of chapter 2, which is not many days from now. This is the, where the kingdom of God is inaugurated. In Acts chapter 2. This fabulous sermon that, that, that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, which is very long and detailed and, and uh, talks about the events that are going on right then and talks about the Old Testament and what it means. Peter could have entitled it, The Kingdom is Inaugurated. I, probably he didn't give titles to his sermons, but uh, he could have entitled that if he'd, if he'd have wanted to. All the people that are get gathered around there for the for Pentecost, and there were thousands and thousands of them from all parts of the empire, from all around, had come and gathered together, and they were seeing these these miraculous events of the speaking in tongues and the and the, the rushing wind and the tongues as a fire on people's head. That's very unusual, and it drew a crowd, it drew attention, and of course, when they're voicing their confusion about that, oh, they're just drunk, or what's going on here, or or whatever their confusion was, Peter stands up. And he quotes to them from the Old Testament. And he says, the things that you're seeing right now, these very unusual events, were prophesied. They were talked about. They were expected in the Old Testament. They were, they were going to come. So we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, well, starting in 16, this, Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he, 
quotes from this passage in the Old Testament that was very well known. It was talking about the day of the Lord. It was talking about the events surrounding the day of the Lord. And Peter is saying, hey, you showed up to look today. You saw and noticed these bizarre, these strange, these very unusual and noteworthy events that are going on. You want to know what they are? You don't want to know what they're about? That's what Joel was talking about. This is to fulfill what Joel said would happen. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. It's beginning right now. God is building his kingdom in a new way even now. What you see and hear is what Joel was talking about. And this is it. You are seeing it. And so you see the kingdom of God is is being inaugurated, first of all. And second of all, that kingdom is boundless. It, it knows no boundaries. Here in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his sermon. And what's the result? Thousands of Jews respond in faith. Thousands of Jews hear the gospel. They receive salvation and they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful, wonderful example of evangelism. And God is doing a unique and powerful thing amongst the Jews in chapter 2. Well, that's just the Jews. That's... That's, that's one people group. Well, you see in chapter 8, you see a similar thing happening where the gospel goes to Samaritans. The Samaritans who are uh, related to the Jews, they are also children of Abraham, but they've sort of been uh, uh, crossbred with Gentiles and there's mixture and there's religious confusion and whatnot, but they, they are children of Abraham. They're the, they're the cousins of the Jews. They're the very close relatives, though disliked, but, but they're close relatives of the Jews. And you see in chapter 8 that the gospel goes to them and salvation goes to them and the giving of the Holy Spirit goes to them as well. So that you see even the Samaritans in chapter 8. So the gospel has crossed a boundary. The kingdom of God has crossed this boundary. And then in chapter 10, just a couple of chapters later, you see the gospel going to the Gentiles as well. All the way to the Gentiles, from the Jews to the Samaritans who were, who were Abraham's children, but, but, but not really considered to be so by the Jews. The gospel has gone to them as well. And now in chapter 10, you see the gospel go all the way to the Gentiles. The gospel goes to them, salvation goes to them, and the giving of the Holy Spirit goes to them as well. Well, I, I want to tell you that there are no more boundaries like that for the gospel to cross. It has crossed all boundaries The kingdom of God is boundless and there are no more such boundaries. And that all starts there in chapter 2. Thirdly, I want us to see what's going on in the book of Acts. What what God is doing in the book of Acts has to do with spirit-empowered witnesses. Spirit-empowered witnesses. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning the full restoration that they had expected. Is all of that going to happen right now? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, by, by their very question, you can see this, there's some remaining confusion for them about what the kingdom means. They're thinking of a restoration to things the way they were. Going back to the kingdom as it was like, perhaps under David, maybe under Solomon, when, when they had great glory. Is that kingdom going to be restored? That's what we've been looking for, this, this Davidic Messiah who's going to take things back and restore that kind of kingdom. 
Their question is, is uh, reveals their confusion. And you see Jesus answer. He says, first of all, God's not going to tell you his kind of timing and what sort of exactly uh, things he has planned. But here's what you can do. You need to stay in the city until you receive the Holy Spirit. And you will become Spirit-empowered witnesses that the kingdom of God is not quite what you expect. The kingdom of God is that which is empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 8. And so the rest of the book plays that out. You see that they wait. The Holy Spirit does come. We've looked at chapter 2 already and seen the events that happened there. The Holy Spirit does come and you see their ministry grow and change. And I want to draw our attention to to just two aspects of their ministry, two aspects of what it means to be a Spirit-empowered witness. First of all is that the witnesses of Christ care for believers. They care for one another. Two times in these early passages, the end of chapter 2 and what we want to look at, the end of chapter 4, you have a description of what their community was like. Let's read verses 32 of chapter 4 through the end of that chapter. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And the great With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so you have this beautiful description, which is very similar to what we read at the end of chapter 2, this beautiful description of how the early church was interested in taking care of one another. They, They even sold pieces of property so they could meet the needs of their fellow Christians. They would, they would even sacrifice themselves and bring that money to the apostles, give it to the apostles, and the apostles would divvy it up so that no one had need. They were deeply invested in taking care of one another, of meeting the practical needs of one another. And if you look at the very next verse, beginning in chapter 5, you have one of the most shocking events that happens in all of the book of Acts. You have the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And we know that story, of course, that they, they, like Barnabas, sold a piece of property. Only unlike Barnabas, they didn't bring all of the proceeds of that and give it to the apostles to distribute. They pretended like they had sold it for a lesser amount. They kept the profit for themselves, and they brought this lesser amount and laid that at the, at the apostles' feet and said, Oh, we've sold our property, and we sold it for this amount when secretly they had kept some for themselves. And the issue there isn't that they weren't allowed to keep some for themselves. The issue was that they were presenting to the apostles, presenting to the church, as if they were presenting the totality of their gift, when in fact they had kept some for themselves. And so the issue has to do with lying to the church, lying to the apostles, and even lying to the Holy Spirit. So that when they did so, when they, when they said, yeah, uh, really, we sold the property for this amount, 
and didn't divulge this other amount. It, it looked like they were giving a very generous gift. It looked like they were being just like Barnabas and supporting uh, the needy Christians. But in fact, they weren't. They were supporting them, and that, that was a good thing. But they were also keeping some for themselves on the side. So they lied to the Holy Spirit. But what I want us to notice in this context is what they lied about to the Holy Spirit. You see, the result of this interaction that they have with Peter is that Ananias dies. He, he, he lies and then he dies. And then Sapphira shows up sometime later after they've removed her husband's body. And Peter quizzes her and says, did, did you really sell that property for this amount? The amount that you posted on your, on your giving check? Is, is that the amount you actually sold it for? And she says, yes. And she dies right there. You see, they, they both die as a result of lying to the Spirit. But I want us to notice what they lied to the Spirit about. They lied to the Spirit about supporting needy Christians. They said they were doing it. They said they were supporting. They said they were great supporters. They were, they were helping those who were in need. They were, they were being generous just like Barnabas. But in fact, they weren't. They weren't. They were keeping some from themselves, for themselves, not telling the rest of the community about it. They were profiting in some way themselves, though they were giving, but they were profiting more themselves. You see, this story is to, to convey a couple of different ideas of what's going on here. First of all, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. That's a, a very serious offense. But then second of all, this topic, what, what they lie about is caring for other believers. Caring for other believers and how important this was in the life of the early church. That they care for one another. There were, there were Christians who were in great need, great financial need, great need of food and shelter. And the church met those needs by the generous giving, by even the sacrificial giving. And so there are a couple things I want us to notice. First of all, just how seriously God takes how the church treats him. And secondly, how seriously God takes how the church treats one another. That's the point, I believe, that's coming through from this passage about Ananias and Sapphira. So there's a point of application for us, isn't there? One thing the Lord is always doing is using Christians to care for the need of other Christians. And we don't know how things are going to go with this COVID-19 situation. And we may very well end up with families who are in dire need. They may need help with rent or mortgage. They may need much greater help than that. They may need help with those things and food and shelter. And they may need us to give sacrificially to help and meet those needs. Now, I want to say <clears throat> one um, this is a way that that uh, Parkside has been very um, encouraging to me to look and see how the believers here love one another and are willing to meet one another's needs sacrificially. I praise the Lord for that. That is a, that is a sign of God's grace at work at Parkside. And so so we are grateful to you for that and we are grateful to God Almighty for that. I do want to say also that I got communications from two different uh, people that I know in Africa this week about 
the dire situations they find themselves in because both of these people are from um, poorer countries in Africa. And because of the COVID-19 situation, the borders are closed. And so food and commerce is not going back and forth. And so what's happening is the food that is in those countries is becoming ever more expensive. And so, of course, that doesn't go along with these poor Christians having an increase in their salary to be able to pay for that. And so there are those, particularly older people, who are suffering and uh, not able to uh, feed themselves. And so they, they wrote to us, and they, um, they asked us about that very situation. And so uh, we, we have already sent some money to help in, in one of those situations in, in Burundi. And uh, there's another situation where a, um, the, the widow of a pastor who has ten, at least 10 people that she's caring for and used to be cared for on the pastor's salary. Now the pastor's dead. She has no salary and still has the same number of people to care for. And so there have been some Christians who've helped out in that situation, and, and we may very well help out in that situation. Well, these are, these, are, these are stories that just came up within this last week, and they're around the world. And it's easy for us who can't picture their faces to think, oh, yeah, that's, things are terrible in Africa. Well, they may get that way here. And there may be a time when we need to feed one another, when we need to even sell our property and meet the needs of uh, one another. And so th- this is one of the things that, that Christians do and, and uh, show themselves to be Christians in this sense in the New Testament that we have them caring for one another. So they, they care for believers, first of all, and witnesses, second of all, they evangelize unbelievers. They evangelize unbelievers. It's hard in the book of Acts. If you've read Acts, you know just how often you have people preaching the gospel. And even sometimes it's people that you wouldn't expect who are preaching the gospel. It's hard to pick one story just to focus on for today. But I want us to look very briefly at chapter 8 and verse 4. Chapter 8 and verse 4. I think it's very instructive. The church at this time has just witnessed the martyrdom of one of their own. One of their more prominent members, Stephen, finds himself stoned to death. So what are the, what are the people going to do? What's the church going to do now that one of their most visible leaders has been put to death there in Jerusalem? What will they do? Well, rather than becoming incapacitated or losing their nerve, we see this in chapter 8 and verse 4. Now those who were scattered... So we do have them being scattered. They didn't uh, continue to preach in the same way, in the same place, etc. That ended up with Stephen being stoned. They do scatter, but as they went, they went about preaching the word. So they did scatter. They did seek safety in certain ways. They did move off to other areas where the heat wasn't quite so high, but they took the gospel with them. As they went, they continued to preach. And that's the theme throughout this book is that wherever they go, they take the gospel with them to the people around them so that they're proclaiming the truth of the gospel wherever they go, whether it's on board a ship, whether it's after a shipwreck, whether it's in jail, or whether it's in a situation where the Holy Spirit wouldn't let Paul and his companions go into particular regions, so they go and proclaim the gospel elsewhere. Everywhere Christians go, they take the gospel with them. This is one of the evidences of being a spirit-empowered witness is that we evangelize unbelievers. And I don't think I have to develop or make an argument for that much more. If you've read the Bible, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that that is the nature of the church. 
And so I have a question for us, an application question, and that is, will you take the gospel to those that you encounter during this quarantine? And already I can see a, a hand of objection that it's a quarantine. We don't see people. <laughs> well, what, I, I want to say that, yes, you do see people. They're just not the normal people you see. It's a different set of people that you see. Probably people you've never shared with before. Probably people you wouldn't normally come into contact with. And so the challenge for us is when we're in contact with those people, they're not our normal circle. Will we share the gospel with them? Will we, will we give to them? Will we, will we confess to them? Will we defend to them and explain to them the hope that we have? during this time when the world has no hope. That's a challenge for us. Will we be like the church in the New Testament who took the gospel with them everywhere they went? When they fell on hard times, they shared the gospel with those around them. Well, church, we've fallen on some maybe hard times. Will we take the gospel with us? And will we proclaim it to those around us? Christians care for the needs of other believers and Christians evangelize the lost. And then finally, looking for the Lord's return. Looking for the Lord's return. Going back to John chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, and we see this expectation that they had about the Lord returning. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. And when he had said these things, Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The the return of Christ is a reality. It is not a concept. It's not a philosophy. It's not something that we encourage ourselves with. It's not... It's not a vague notion. These, the, the, the church, the whole church was there, gathered, all the apostles, disciples, they were there. Jesus is being raised up and he, he's taken away by a cloud into heaven. And they're standing there and dumbfounded, just like I would be dumbfounded. And so would you if we were to see that happen. And they're just amazed at his departure. He has ascended into heaven. And you notice the, the repetition of the word heaven numerous times in there. That's the point. That's where Jesus is right now. He's in heaven. He went to heaven. He's in heaven. That's where he is. And so they're standing and they're looking into heaven. And they're, they're, they're amazed and they're, and they're awestruck by what has happened. And there appear two men beside them, dressed in white robes. That means they're angels, most likely, dressed in white robes and said, Why are you, uh, why are you gazing into heaven? Why are you looking, why are your eyes up there just on him, on where he went? Don't you know he will return in the same way that he departed? For the Christian, the return of Christ is a reality. The bodily return of of Christ to judge the living and the dead is a foundational doctrine of Christianity. It's a non-negotiable truth. It's something that all Christians believe. There will come a day when Jesus returns and wraps up all of history as we know it and when his glory is revealed in its fullness. That time is coming. We don't know when, but that time is coming. He will come back just as he left. And so 
it's important for us to know that this is foundational and it's something that Peter took note of. It's something that the apostles took note of. It's something that the, the angels come and they, they take note of. And they want the reader to take note of as well. That Jesus will come back. Our posture as Christians is not only with our eyes in heaven and thus off of earth, thus off of the church, thus off of the world around us. As if we're no longer here, we're just there waiting to be there and the rest of this I don't care about. Part of what the angels are saying is he's going to come back. He will be here again. And that gives a greater gravity to the world around us. That gives a greater focus and a greater emphasis for us on the people that are around us. That he will come back and what will he do when he comes back? We'll get to that in just a moment. But I do want us to see that Peter, who is standing there, remembers this. And he's meditating on the same truth when he writes his first epistle. He says this. Chapter 1 of verse 13 of First Peter, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns, one of the things that he will do is bring a greater grace, a fuller revelation of himself, of who he is, of what it means to know him. He continues in chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, Church, even now, in times when you suffer, going through hard times, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in those things. Because the time will come when he returns, when his glory is revealed. And we will rejoice and we will be glad at that time. So his, his returning, his coming back is a time of great reward. It's a time of great joy. It's a time of, of wonder for the Christian. We will see him as he is and thus we will be made like him. And so, Christian... The return of Christ, not only is it a reality, but it is to be a consistent focus. These angels stand there and they look at the apostles whose heads are turned towards heaven and they're just amazed that Jesus was just there and now the cloud has taken him away and now he's gone in heaven. And these angels come up and they, they interrupt their reverie. They, they come at a time when they're so dumbfounded they probably can't even speak to one another. And these apostles, show, uh, these, these angels show up and speak to the apostles, encourage them not to be so taken or distracted by the fact that he went away that they forget that he will return again. And when he returns, not only is that blessing for the Christian, not only is that grace for the Christian, not only is that wonder for the Christian, but it's judgment for the world too. It's judgment for the world. He will return. He's, he's in heaven now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us right now. As we're meeting right now, He's interceding for us. But that's not the end of the story for Jesus. 
That's not all over. He will return. And he will bring reward and blessing for his children. And he will bring judgment and wrath for his enemies. So look at how motivational that must have been for Peter and for the apostles there when they, they, were, they were longingly looking after their Lord who has gone away into heaven. They, they love him. They love his presence. And they're probably wishing they were there with him. And the angels come and remind them, there are people around you. There is a world around you. And he will return and it will be glorious and it will be a blessing to you. And it will be destruction for those around you. And so you see them beginning in chapter 2 and all the way through the remainder of the book proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And so I think an application for us today is that we need to raise our awareness of Christ's return to. I think it would change how we live our lives. That's what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 4, that when, when we have our minds prepared, when we have our minds set on the return of Christ, it changes the way we live our lives. It changes the way we value things. It changes the way we look at suffering when we are aware of His return. And it changes the way we look at unbelievers around us when we remind ourselves of His return, that He will return for them in judgment judgment that is final and that is full. And so we're motivated to share the gospel. We're motivated to minister to those around us. We're motivated to take the good news of salvation in Christ to our unbelieving relatives and neighbors and co-workers and people that we run into that we don't normally run into, even though they have a face mask on because of COVID-19, to take the gospel to them as well. When he returns... Wrongs will be made right. Even wrongs like COVID-19 that is a natural form of, of, of evil, a physical form of evil. When he returns, we will see him as he is and we will be made like him. And when he returns, we will understand that any sacrifice we made for him will, will become very small, will seem very small because we will understand the very great reward of what it means to know him and to see him. And when he returns, we will fully understand the vanity of living for this world and for this life alone. Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The return of Christ is a profound truth that is to be our consistent focus. So how did we... Where have we ended up? We asked in the beginning of, of the day, what is the Lord doing today? What is he doing today? And by looking at the Acts of the Apostles, I believe we've come up with this answer for what he is doing today. First of all, he is powerfully at work, bringing about his boundless kingdom 
through his Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses, the church. As we do two things, as we love one another practically, even materially, while we also bring the gospel to unbelievers around us. And all of this takes place as he motivates and encourages us with the sure promise of his bodily return at the revelation of his very great glory. So, so what's he doing? He's at work, just like he's always been at work. Our time seems crazy. It's the, the, we don't even recognize the world from, from two months ago. And he is at work doing the same things by the same means. He works by his Holy Spirit through his church to accomplish his ends. So what is God doing in, in this crazy time that we live in? Well, he's doing what he's always done. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we need to remind one another that we can fully trust him as he is doing that very thing. Let's pray. Father, this has been a whirlwind tour through parts of the book of Acts. There's so much more, of course. But our desire, Lord, is to know what you're doing. To know what you're doing in our world. To know what you're doing in our lives. We don't know the specifics and we don't know the details. And you haven't told us how things will turn out specifically related to COVID-19. Specifically related to uh, these events that are going on. We don't know. But we know you. And we know that you are still at work by your Holy Spirit, empowering us as your witnesses to love one another the way you do and to bring the gospel to unbelievers around us. And by these means, you are building your kingdom, even during quarantine, even during a plague, even during a time when we have to meet over the internet. You are at work. And so we trust you. We don't know what you're doing precisely, but we trust you. And we give you glory. And we take very great comfort ourselves knowing that you are sovereign over these things and that you are working them out for our good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you are conforming us to the image of your Son. Father, we thank you that even in turbulent times, we have you as our rock. We thank you and we praise you. And we pray that you would continue to work in us and through us during these times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.